All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 20. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. In the next five or uh, six weeks or so, we're going to wrap up our series in worldview. Uh, And as we do that in the next five or six weeks, we're going to wrap up by reviewing something that we review every few years, and that is, drum roll, five points of Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism. Some of the most central doctrines that were most clearly articulated uh, during the Protestant Reformation. Um, For some of you, this is new. For some of you, it's a review of what you've heard before. Um, But basically, we're going to explore what is Calvinism How is it biblical? Is it even biblical? Is it grounded in Scripture and not just in in human uh, tradition? Those are some of the questions that we'll be asking and turning to the Scriptures to answer in the next next five weeks or so. But before we jump into that, uh, it's worth making a prefatory note and then give you some historical context, and that's what we're going to do today. Here's the prefatory note, and that is the problem that our culture has, uh, and you're your non-Christian coworkers and friends have with doctrine. Okay, the D word, doctrine. I mean, uh, why, why are Christians so hung up on doctrine? Why so serious, right? <laughs> why, why indoctrinate people? What is up with that? Okay. So, so with anything that has an ism attached to it, uh, our culture is sort of allergic to that stuff uh, because it sounds like indoctrination. It, it seems exclusive of other opposing views and comes across as too rigid. You shouldn't be so rigid. You should be a bit more flexible with things. So let's address that and uh, this cultural problem we have with, with doctrine and various isms. And what I hope that will do for... Now, by the way, if you're here and that's exactly what you're thinking, I'm so glad you're here. But if you have, you're here and you have friends who think that way, I hope this will equip you um, to kindly address this point for your non-Christian friends and, and coworkers who have this very common uh, objection. So first of all, the thing that's, that we have to acknowledge about indoctrination, okay, indoctrinating people, that is not just a Christian phenomenon or a religious phenomenon. It's really, when you think reasonably about it, it's a human phenomenon, meaning it's something we all do. Okay? We all have doctrines, and we all have our isms, whether we articulate them or not. Here's why. Because as soon as you even say something like, you know, we shouldn't be so rigid, 
We shouldn't be so exclusive of other views. What you're also saying is, that's something we should be rigid about. That's something we should be exclusive about. Namely, we should be rigid about not being rigid. And we should be exclusive about being exclusivistic. You kind of find yourself shooting yourself in the foot there, don't you? Or as soon as you say something like, you know, stop trying to convert others and just live and let live. Stop trying to convert people. Well, that sounds a lot like you're trying to convert me to that. Right? Uh, convert me to live and let live. See, this is something we all do. It's, it's a natural human phenomenon. We all want to convert others to our point of view, even if that view is we shouldn't try to convert people. Okay. Even if that view is we shouldn't indoctrinate people, we want to indoctrinate people into that view. Everyone is rigid about something. Everyone is exclusive about something. Everyone is saying at some point, I'm right, you're wrong, if you disagree with me. You have to hold on to this very basic logical concept because this is one of the most common misunderstandings that I think I run into when I speak with my non-Christian friends. When they say, you know, let's just, what, let's just live and let live. Let's just be kind to everyone, right? Don't be, don't be judgy. <laughs> don't be mean. Be nice. Okay? And I would, I would tend to say, I, I respect that. I really respect that. But my question would be, should we be rigid about being kind to others, or should we be flexible about that? Okay. Should, for example, Korean people be kind to Japanese people, or can they just kind of exclude them from their kindness? Should white people be kind to black people, or can they exclude them from their kindness? And they would, my non-Christian friends would immediately say, oh, no, of course not. Of course they have to be kind to everyone. Well, so you're saying if they choose not to, then you would try to convert them to that view. Okay, I guess, I guess you got me. Even the view of let's be kind to everyone, let's just live and let live, is not letting people who disagree with that live and let live. <laughs> and most, most of my friends, and I'm sure most of your coworkers and friends will, will acknowledge the logic of that. We'll, we'll see, okay, I, I think I see what you're saying. If you present it kindly enough, I'm not giving you this to you to, to like use as a hammer on them. Like, gotcha, got you with my logic. No, kindly present this to them, and they'll, I think they'll understand where you're coming from. Okay. There's a fascinating article written some years ago in the New York Times where this atheist professor at the University of Chicago writes about uh, one, of, one of his brightest, brightest students, uh, I think this is a school business, who, who's also a non-believer, who uh, after a summer break, comes back to this professor and tells the professor that he attended the Billy Graham crusade. And he got converted. He got born again through that Billy Graham crusade. And the professor, deeply saddened by this news, wrote this, quote, I wanted to cast down on the step he was about to take to help him see there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, etc." I wanted to convince him his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude toward doctrine. I wanted to save him. I wanted to save him. Isn't that interesting? From what? From religion, from, skept from, uh, 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 
fundamentalism to skepticism and, and atheistic worldview, he couldn't avoid believing that if, if this student held his view about reality, that he would be better off. So to that converted student, he, he says, I want to convert you back. <laughs> He's trying to convert someone else from being converted. He's indoctrinating the person who's been indoctrinated. He's saying, I'm right, you're wrong. And what you need to be able to understand and be able to communicate to your non-Christian friends is everybody's doing this. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's being exclusive. Everyone's trying to convert some people to something. This is not a strictly religious endeavor. It's not a strictly Christian endeavor, but a universal human endeavor. Now, of course, you can do this arrogantly and pridefully or gently and humbly and respectfully as the Bible commands us to. And, and the, that's the thing about Christianity is it's, it's the only explicitly exclusive doctrine that also says when you preach the truth, you have to do so with love and gentleness and respectfulness. It's built into the doctrine, okay? To love your enemies and love those who oppose you. Even pray for those who persecute you. All systems are exclusive, but Christianity is built within it the most tolerant way to be exclusive, <laughs> the most loving way to be exclusive, Exclusivism is unavoidable, but, but meanness and rudeness are avoidable, and Christianity provides the balance because it's, it has built into it the doctrine of love your enemies as, and, and pray for those who persecute you. And, and here's where our text today comes in, too. It's as if everybody is saying what Paul is saying in our passage today in verse 17, where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Now, it's interesting if you consider that this is Paul's kind of closing of this monumental letter, right, the letter of Romans. He leaves this instruction and command behind. Watch out. Watch out. You knew the Bible says don't murder, right? Don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery. Did you know the Bible also says watch out? It's a command in the Bible to watch out. Have you been watching out? And if you're going, watch out for what? Well, that's why we're doing this series. <laughs> watch out for those who cause divisions and creates obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Okay, Watch out for obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine you've been taught, which assumes what? That you know the doctrine that you've been taught, right? So that when something contradicts it, you identify, okay, this is not right. This is not true, true teaching, right? There's something that grounds us in what we believe, so we can detect the things that contradict it, right? And this is where the more systematic study of the Bible comes into play. It becomes very important for us to understand the truths that are contained in all the scriptures in a systematic way, in sort of a topical manner and an encyclopedic almost kind of manner. Okay? And that's where the branch of theology called systematic theology comes in. And uh, if you have no idea what that is or where to begin, um, uh, if you're interested, however, there's a very accessible and easy-to-read book. It's a massive book, but it's accessible. Titled Systematic Theology, written by John Frame. John Frame, a brilliant theologian, and wrote this massive systematic theology book that's very accessible to anyone who reads English. So I would highly recommend that you pick that up if you're interested. Um, and it's not meant to be read like you would read a novel, okay? Um, it's meant to be more of a reference book. So if you have a question about some topic in the Bible, you will most likely find in the 
table of contents, that very topic that you can then read about. Read about 10 pages on that very topic. It's a very helpful reference book. So it's meant to tell us, here's what the Bible says about this or that. Now, historically, um, the Christian church has largely devoted itself to the study of these doctrines all throughout church history. But there was a particularly significant period in church history where this return to original doctrine and the systematizing of that uh, was particularly fruitful, and that is the Protestant Reformation that began right around the 1500s. And most famously, right on October 31st, 1517, uh, that's Reformation Day, not, not Halloween, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg church door, right? which was Luther's way of saying, watch out. Watch out for the ways in which the Pope, the, the Roman Catholic Church, are placing obstacles to the original doctrine. Okay. They're departing from Jesus' teaching and the apostles' teaching. They're abusing their power. They're taking advantage of the poor rather than giving them the good news of the gospel. They're creating unjust systems. They're undermining human dignity. And they're, most of all, departing from God's original doctrine, the gospel. Okay. And by the way, we as Christians today still have the obligation, obligation to do just that, to call out any abuse uh, of Scripture and the name of Christ in our culture today. If, if it's not consistent with Christ's teaching and his character and his gospel, we should call it out. And more importantly, show them, show our culture what it really looks like than to live as Christ's true disciples through our lives, our words, our deeds. Okay. We still need to bring this kind of reform to our world today. And uh, back during the 1500s, there were these reformers who really accomplished that uh, and, and were faithful to that. They got together and they sparked one of the most significant movements in history, the Protestant Reformation. And it's important for us to be able to look back at that piece of history, that slice of history, and take advantage of all the, the gifts that God gave us during that period of church history uh, so we don't repeat the same mistakes and we learn from the old mistakes. And, and we learn from all the, the, the doctrine and the systematic theology that was developed during that time so we can be guarded, even today, in the true gospel. I don't know how many of you watched the, uh, taken the time to watch the, the ridiculously long uh, release of the Snyder Cut of Justice League. Uh, I don't think I recommend it, just because I feel like it, it should have been a TV series and not like a crazy long movie. Anyway, regardless, there is a very excellent five-minute sequence in that four-hour ordeal, okay, where um, Wonder Woman retells the story uh, of this ancient battle right, to, to Bruce Wayne, this flashback to when this, when this villain Steppenwolf came down and was trying to destroy the world with the mother box. The various entities and groups and tribes came together to form an alliance to fight this common enemy. Okay? And there were, I think there were five groups essentially, right? The Amazons, Atlanteans, Green Lanterns, the, the little G gods, Greek gods, and humans. And it was really cool to see all these mythical creatures kind of come together and, you know, during that brief sequence, fighting and defeating Steppenwolf and, and bringing peace and stability to all the realms, right? And that uh, brief five-minute sequence of the flashback, in my opinion, was the, the best part of the whole movie. And I was actually hoping they would, like, even make a whole movie just out of that, uh, that flashback, that sequence, because I, th I thought it was so cool. But here's the point. Uh, Wonder Woman and Batman, right, and the Justice League, are about to fight the very same enemy again, right? 
The same enemy that was fought thousands of years ago, right? The same villain. And that's why the history, the retelling of the history is important. It gives you a fuller picture of who the enemy is and what is really at stake. Why should people join forces and fight that common enemy, right? That's why the, the, the history lesson is given, even in that movie. The parallel here is, this is, that's what we're about to do. A flashback to this unity that was formed some, some 500, 600 years ago when theologians, pastors, historians, philosophers, even politicians came together and formed what's called a synod or a council or a league, if you will, all in order to fight a common enemy that was rearing its head again. And that common enemy was, okay, drum roll again, falsehood, false teaching, false doctrines. See, back then, it was very clear to them, when people start believing in falsehood, it's destructive. The consequences are detrimental to, to society as a whole. Uh, they witness the breakdown of society, the abusiveness of power, unjust systems, human dignity being robbed. So they set out to protect sound doctrine about humanity, about God, about sin, and about salvation, to refute false doctrines. Now, if, if you're going to say, okay, See, that's, that's what I'm uncomfortable with. The, 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 the Christian talk about, you know, uh, if you don't agree with us, there will be destruction, right? This apocalyptic language and alarmist kind of language. And once again, okay, with respect, that is how we all communicate, okay? That's how we talk about climate change. That's how we talk about voting for a certain political party. That's how we talk about economic policies. That's how we talk about how to handle a pandemic, if you don't rally around this common truth, there will be blood. <laughs> That's essentially how people generally communicate. It's what we do. We, here's, here's what we do. We all seek to present a common truth, to produce a common good, to, pro uh, to avoid a common danger. Okay, A common truth for a common good against a common danger. That's universal. It's just how we're wired to function. We know intuitively that believing in something true collectively leads to collectively good outcomes, and believing in something false collectively leads to collectively bad outcomes. Okay. And another reason why that is also countercultural is because we live in a very hyper-individualistic age where we are essentially entitled, at least we're told that we are, to live our own truth, right? You do you. But does that work? Right? Don't we kind of get stuck then in this self-contradicting dynamic where on the one hand we're told we must agree with those who hold to culturally popular opinions or else you kind of get canceled. But at the same time, we're also told you're entitled to live your own truth. Well, which is it? <laughs> you can't have it both ways. Either truth is a collective thing and therefore we should agree on it and pursue the common good together, or I get to define good however I want. Which is it? And our culture is kind of stuck in this self-contradicting system today. But the rationale behind the synods and the councils of, of the, of, that we see in the church history is simply this, that they are very rational in communicating there is such a thing as common truth and we should rally around it. Let's have a healthy discussion about it and state our findings as doctrines. Why? That's how we all function anyway. 
We want to pursue a common truth to seek a common good against a common danger. Okay? It's just being self-aware about something that our culture isn't self-aware about. It's being proactive about something that our culture is passive about and kind of self-contradicting about. And what I would like to do in this series on the five points of Calvinism is essentially give you an extended sort of flashback into that slice of history and turn that five-minute movie sequence into a five-part sermon series, okay? We're talking today about the importance of doctrine, and, and I, what I want to do now on top of that is um, give you a flashback into church history a little bit uh, that's, in the, that's surrounding the context of the, the five points of Calvinism. So here's a little bit more history, and I hope you have your, your thinking caps on. For, for a little bit more. If we uh, speak very generally about Europe from about 500, 1500 AD, all of Europe was dominated by the Catholic Church, um, Roman Catholic in, in the West, Eastern Orthodox on the other side. But during this very lengthy period, there was this little sparks of movements here and there that was gaining momentum, gaining traction, ever since Augustine, ever since Wycliffe, right? And then it really began to to spike up, kind of like Bitcoin over the years, just kind of like rose, uh, right around the 1500s with Luther and Calvin. Okay, And again, that's what's known as the Protestant Reformation movement. This is when the, the Titanic was turning around the most and made the most progress, right around the 1500s. And Calvin was a very key player in this movement. Uh, he, John Calvin just had a, he has a brilliant mind, he was extremely effective and gifted in teaching and in preaching and writing theology. And so as he sought to bring reform to the corrupted Roman Catholic Church by going back to the scriptures, going back to the Bible and the apostles' teaching, uh, his writings and teachings became very foundational for subsequent movements and, and, and his students building on that momentum that he built. So. The, the phrase five points of Calvinism actually wasn't something that Calvin himself coined. He actually would probably hate the, the phrase himself, but the, the subsequent generations picked up on Calvin's teaching and called it five points of um, Calvinism. And here's what happened. A council convened uh, about 100 years after Calvin in, in the Netherlands called Synod of Dort, D-O-R-T, the Synod of Dort, around 1618. And they came together, and they really came together to address the teachings of a man named Jacob Arminius. There was a man named Jacob Arminius. He had a small following in the 1500s, but his influence really grew significantly around the early 1600s. And his main beef was all that the stuff that Luther and Calvin were teaching during the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s were wrong. Okay. And then he proceeded to present the five points of Arminius, his five main objections against Calvin's teaching. And then so they held this investigative council, again, philosophers, theologians, pastors coming together, and they investigated Arminius's claim, and they went back to the scriptures, they studied the Bible, and looked at more further church, uh, church history, uh, and see what is most consistent with the doctrine that has been taught since the very beginning, from the apostles, from Christ himself, from all of the scriptures. And here's what the Synod of Dort found. They found that the teachings of Arminius, and particularly his five objections to Calvin, were not consistent with the scriptures, were not accurate to what the scriptures were teaching. And so they presented the five rebuttals to Arminius's five points, which later 
came to be known as Five Points of Calvinism. So what really started wasn't Five Points of Calvinism. It was actually the, the origin of this was the Five Points of Arminius. And when the council sought to refute those five things, they, they came up with the Five Points of Calvinism. Okay. Now, I do want to reiterate here that we're not jumping into this series on the Five Points of Calvinism because... We love Calvin, and he's the bomb. No, okay, that's not, we can't get enough of Calvin. No, it's because we love Scripture. And Calvin has done a good job pointing us back to the Scriptures. Okay. And I want to invite you to test this as you go through this series. Test whether I'm quoting Calvin more, I'm quoting Scripture more. Okay? Is it, is it Calvinism we're really defending, or is it Scripture itself? And I want to show you it's really Scripture itself. And if you've never heard of Five Points of Calvinism, that's great. This would be a great opportunity for you to learn about this uh, significant historical kind of period. If you've heard about it, that's also great. It's a great way to review this. Um, and perhaps also unlearn some of the caricatures that are out there about Calvin and, and Calvinism in general. I feel like um, for a lot of the people who heard of her, some things about Calvinism, you've heard some caricatures about it, but not looked at it at length. That's what I've encountered when I've um, spoke with, spoken with people about this. It's kind of like this. It's almost as if you've seen the recent sort of version of, if you've seen the recent version of the Justice League movie without ever having seen the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, and you think, therefore, Batman sucks, okay? Because <laughs> you've seen the Justice League, but you haven't seen the, the Christopher Nolan trilogy or the, the animated series, which is my fav childhood favorite growing up with Kevin Conroy's voice. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, immediately when you go home tonight, uh, go on YouTube and look up Batman the Animated Series and it will change your life. Um, so what I want to do for you in the next few weeks is show you the non-caricature, non-rotten tomato version <laughs> of Calvinism um, and show you how that's consistent with Scripture, like the doctrine of human depravity, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of limited atonement, which means Christ died for his sheep, the doctrine of irresistible grace, and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. How these central doctrines are consistent with the scriptures, and it's actually what the scriptures explicitly teach us. That's what this series is going to be about. And ultimately, it's to point you to the most central doctrine that we just can't live without, and that is the gospel. We want to do this because we want to get the gospel right, because what our hearts ultimately long for and need is the gospel. And it's so essential that we get the gospel of Jesus Christ correct. So for today, I've just given you some prefatory notes about why doctrine matters and some history, right? And you've survived. You're still here. Congratulations. <laughs> Let me just close with this last final thought, and that's taken from verse 18 in our passage today. If you look at verse 18, it says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now notice here how Paul describes the naive. The naive. Okay. It is those who simply abide by their own appetites. Meaning, they just want to confirm what they already like. That's the biblical definition of naivete. I have my prior commitments, this is what I like, and I'm sticking to it. That's the biblical definition of naivete, serving your own pre-existing appetite. I just only want affirmation, I only want confirmation 
and no contradictions, no challenges to what I am already committed to. Okay. So in other words, a naive person, in a sense, is someone who is very, very much easily taken up by things that are compatible with them, but very resistant to what they might find challenging or contradicting to their current perspective. That's naivete, according to the Bible. Another way to see this is it's placing your personal comfort as your number one priority, not truth. Okay? That's naivete. I, you know what? I'm okay with being deceived a little bit as long as I'm comfortable. That's naivete. Because if truth were your priority, then you'd be okay with the discomfort of somehow, sometimes, being removed from your prior commitments to having new commitments or new beliefs. You'd be at least open to that possibility because you're not serving comfort, you're serving truth. If you're after truth, that could mean you, you would have to surrender your comfort at some point. And that's very important for us to understand before we study any doctrine. We're not going after comfort, we're going after truth. Uh, Diana Mutz, she's a sociologist who teaches at Stanford, and she found in one of her research that those with the highest level of education actually have the lowest exposure to people with conflicting points of view. Okay? Like face-to-face -face exposure and real friendships with people who don't have the same point of view. The, smart, the higher the level of education, okay, the lower their exposure to people with differing worldviews. Here's the reason why. Uh, the reason is because when you are smarter, you're also smarter at staying comfortable. <laughs> And so you keep yourself from things that cause you discomfort. You're better at it. You're better at keeping yourself comfortable because you're that much smarter. And they also found in the research, those with no high school degree have even greater diverse social circles and the more, more diverse viewpoints than those with higher education. Okay. They're more down to earth. They're more open to, oh, you see it that way. I don't see it that way. Let's go grab a beer or milk, depending on your <laughs> convictions. Okay. And, and her conclusion is basically, right, therefore, uh, just because you have higher education doesn't mean you have higher character or higher tolerance of those who disagree with you. And just because you have lower education doesn't mean you have lower tolerance and lower uh, social abilities. Okay. That's an interesting finding. And what does that tell us? Being naive is not about whether you're educated or not. You can be educated and be very naive. You can be highly educated and be very naive just by surrounding yourself with people who agree with you entirely. Okay. So it's important we don't define naivete according to the level of education, but define your level of honesty, intellectual honesty, and maturity based on how many of your friends actually have differing worldviews than you. How often are you open to having your current views being challenged? That's the better assessment of whether you're a naive person or not than What's your level of education? Okay. That's, a biblical, that's a biblically consistent principle. Um, and so the real question about naivete is sort of what, um, remember what Dr. Strange asked Quill? What master do you serve? Remember that? Right? And Quill says, what am I supposed to say? Jesus? <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Because yes, that's exactly what you're supposed to say. Uh, the logos, the way, the truth, and the life. That's what your master is supposed to be. And sometimes that does bring us out of our pre-existing commitments and comfort zones, doesn't it? To have 
this person who is the truth, to whom we must surrender everything and surrender our lives to. Right? Nothing is more discomforting than that, that somebody owns me. Somebody is Lord over me. Somebody commands my every minute of my life. Okay. The Bible's answer to our naivete is quite simple. Uh, are you willing to serve the Lord Jesus Christ as your God and serve him as your truth and let him bring you out of whatever prior commitments you have and prior comfort zones you may have and let him cause all sorts of discomfort in your life because what you're seeking after ultimately is not comfort but the truth. And so as we study the five points of Calvinism, I hope that's something that you will keep in the back of your mind. This is not ultimately to draw near to Calvin, it's to draw near to Christ and the gospel. And again, this is just a systematic way of thinking about the gospel that will help us do just that, to grow into the truth of Christ and to Christ himself. And I hope that for those of you who, who may find some of these doctrines challenging, you know, whether it's predestination or limited atonement, be okay with that to some extent. Be okay with being challenged and shaken out of your comfort zone because the, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. It means you're not being naive. Right? You're not staying in your comfort zone, therefore you're not being naive. So be, be okay with that as we wrestle with these doctrines and know that that is actually how we encounter the true and living God, somebody bigger than us, somebody we cannot fit into our pre-existing you know, uh, finite minds but somebody who would cause us to break out of that and expand our worldview and see God for who he truly, truly is. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, use this series to, in a way, uh, free us uh, to the truth and free us from ourselves, uh, free us from our obsession with comfort and, and help us seek the truth and, and so that your truth would set us free. And set us free not only from some intellectual ignorance, but truly set us free from our sins by the power of your true gospel so that we will live according to your purpose, according to your will, according to your kingdom, and, and go about every aspect of our lives, whether that's work or studies, friendship, marriage, family life, not according to our comfort, but according to your truth, knowing that your truth is what is best. Uh, your truth is what would bring bless your blessing. Uh, into our lives. So Lord, we, we ask that you would help us in this endeavor and uh, humble us before you and uh, give us the desire to draw near to you and to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.